Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. I've always had a bit of a hard time talking about love and devotion because it feels like talking about my love life. It seems like a very, very personal thing. It's talk. It's like talking about what happens in the bedroom when the when the door is shut between me and my lover. So it's much easier to talk Buddhist and to sit here and talk about the yanas and about compassion and all those things. And it's also kind of tricky because certainly not everybody in this room, nor in any room, almost always that I I talk in come from the same devotional path. There are people who are Buddhists who aren't really theists at all. There are people who love Jesus. There are people who have been very wounded by the early uh, Christian upbringing. There are people who are Jewish. There are people who are atheists. So there's all these, all these uh, different backgrounds. So it is hard then to find a language where we can really plunge into love. And yet, when we look at this developmental path that I've been talking about, basically our working toward resting in wholeness or in non-duality, which is what we will be dying into, to the extent that we can cultivate resting in the radiance that is the nature of reality, dying will be another moment of that rather than a big shock, then so much the better. But for many of us, it is a big jump to go from this delusion of we're separate selves experiencing an objective solid reality that everybody is experiencing in a, in a, in a parallel and coherent way to there's just one consciousness, there's really nothing out there that's not consciousness. That's a very big leap. And in Tibetan Buddhism, which I think is in some ways the wisest and most scientific or well-thought-out path in a way, what they say is that there is really a, a very important progression, a well-thought-out progression to resting in non-duality. And it, it is what we've been talking about, uh, mindfulness, devotion, compassion, Tantra non-duality, but what what they say is that devotion and love come before compassion. And for the reason for that, I think is rather obvious that compassion means opening our hearts to suffering, opening our hearts to that which is difficult. Love is just opening our hearts when it's not so difficult. So it's it's easier to love God than it is to love Donald Trump. It's easier to love God than it is to love yourself. It's easier to love God than it is to love your partner. It's easier to love God than it is to love Joe Biden, right? I mean, when we when we really look at the, the relative plane here, people have faults. They have problems. They have places where it's very easy to judge. And I did come across a practice this last week. I have these ongoing groups that I'd like to briefly mention. I, f I found it very, very useful. I, I got this from a guy named Jeffrey Hopkins, 
who was the Dalai Lama's translator for about 10 years before and the beginning of his being very popular. And what, what uh, Jeffrey said was that before the Dalai Lama became popular and he was teaching mostly in India, he would give these really long, complex talks about Dzogchen and other things, talks that would go on four or five, six hours. And then he started going to the West and he'd come into a town and he'd say, everybody wants to be happy just like you want to be happy. Everybody wants to suffer less just like you want to suffer less. And he'd go to the next town and he'd say, everybody wants to be happy just like you want to be happy. Everybody wants to suffer less just like you do. Such a simple, obvious thing. And Jeffrey thought, you know, what's going on here? I mean, this is so repetitive. It's so simplistic. But the more he thought about it, he realized how difficult it was to find that sense of equality, to really love that place in people. And what he came to, and I really, I really agree with this a lot, that the way we relate to other people is we see them. There's a visual component to what's going on there. And the visual sense is, by many, many accounts, the sense that leads to the most grasping. At the end of a retreat, when you kind of open up your eyes and you start looking around, one of the first things that happens is you feel your eyes going out and grabbing experience. And even right now, as you're looking at the screen or as you're looking around the room, is it possible to begin to do soft looking, they call it, where you're allowing the visual impression to come to you rather than your eyes going out and grasping? And if you walk down the street and you look into other people's eyes, you'll see that most people's eyes are leaning out. They're kind of grasping at reality. There's a sense of, I want something, or I need something, or where am I going, rather than just letting life come to you, which, to the extent that we're not soft seeing, it's really difficult to surrender into love. Whereas when, when we're relating to ourselves, it's got almost nothing to do with seeing. Uh, it has a lot to do with feeling. In fact, just yesterday, I had a Zoom meeting with a woman. I won't identify her too carefully, but we were brought together by a mutual friend. She is a, an executive in a home healthcare agency here in the Bay Area and a very loving person, a, a natural caregiver. And she was really very new and a little bit... Uh, shy about using Zoom. So uh, we're sitting there and I, I said, you know, she said, I really, I, I don't know Zoom. It makes me kind of uncomfortable. And I explained speaker view and gallery view to her. And when she put on gallery view and she could see herself, it made her very uncomfortable, right? <laughs> to see herself talking made her really uncomfortable. And I remember when I was younger, how difficult it was for me to get a haircut where I'd have to sit there staring at myself in the barber's mirror for 30 minutes while he's, he or she was taking off part of my hair, right? So that we mostly relate to ourselves, not through the visual, but through feeling. So that when we're seeing all these other people out there, it's very difficult not to say, 
oh, that person looks like they're overweight, or why are they wearing those crazy clothes, or look at the way they move their body, how stiff they are, or look at how beautiful that person is, they're more beautiful than I am, or that person clearly has a lot of money because look at those shoes, or you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever the thing is, right? So that instead of, of, of realizing that here is somebody who fundamentally wants to be happy just like I want to be happy and fundamentally wants to suffer less just like I want to suffer less. We get caught in all of these much more superficial qualities about that person. So that I would suggest that you do this practice. Uh, we're, we're not going to do it right now. Maybe we'll do it later today. Let's see what happens. But it isn't just a quick visualization. The way it's been suggested and the way I've been playing with it is you spend a couple of weeks working with one or a few people that you have positive regard for. I mean, suppose you have a partner that you love or a child or somebody. It's not just you picture them and you say this a couple times, but you you do it long enough that you really start getting to that point where you feel that fundamental equality between who you are and who they are. Then for a couple of weeks, you pick somebody with neutral regard, maybe a neighbor that you don't know too well, or somebody that you you uh, see when you shop at a store, or somebody you see on the news and you don't, maybe like the news announcer on NBC, but you know, somebody, somebody who you don't have positive feeling, you don't have negative feeling, and yet they're in your life a little bit. And then finally, you move on to somebody that's difficult for you to connect with somebody that you don't like in a certain way. But you don't start with the most difficult, difficult person. You start with somebody who annoys you a bit. We all have people in our life that annoy us, right? A little bit. Maybe it's the... Anyway, I won't make that joke. So <laughs> do this as a practice. And I, I, found, it, I found it very deepening and, and really quite wonderful. Even though I'm saying that you, you do it in this rather concentrated way, it doesn't hurt if you're walking down the sidewalk, if people still do that. It's kind of weird or not, because everybody has a mask on, and you can't tell what kind of expressions they have on. But you can also, you're just walking down the sidewalk, and there's somebody, or you're at work, and there's somebody over on the other side of the room, and you just say that to yourself a couple of times. They want to be happy just like I want to be happy. They want to suffer less just like I want to suffer less. So that is... Uh, Wonderful practice. It's uh, just a kind of a rough and ready way to start feeling love for other people. And when we're talking about love rather than compassion, there are obviously uh, two main, maybe three main components here. Loving yourself, loving other people, and loving God in a devotional way. You may remember that one of the defining qualities of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. And in fact, that the near enemy of compassion looks like compassion, but is not compassion, it's the enemy of compassion, is pity, where you keep yourself up here and there down there as a way of separating yourself from their suffering. That you see their suffering, you have some empathy for it, but you don't really want to directly experience it. So, Compassion requires empathy, but it's a step beyond empathy. And we're saying the same here in the context of love. 
that to really love somebody, if you're you're up here thinking, oh, you poor person, or you're down there and thinking, what a great human being you are, and I'm just nothing compared to you at the extremes, then love is just going to be an idea. But when we really begin to get in an embodied way this fundamental sense that we are equal to other people. I mean, I remember being in India. I remember being in Bombay back when it was called Bombay instead of Mumbai. And it was a hot summer day and there was, I was out doing something or another. I don't know. I was between ashrams or something. And I would look and there was like, it seemed like 10,000 people, everybody with white clothes on. It was like a, like a huge anthill that people were indistinguishable. It was just like a mass of humanity moving around. And I felt each of these people have a life and I have no idea who they are or what it's like. And it, it's just, uh, it, it, it was, it was a stretch to see each one of these as an individual human being that had a life that they, they loved people. They, they had their own hopes and fears and desires. It was so much easier just to see it as the masses or to, you know, pull back a little bit and not, feel how much suffering and how much joy there was uh, walking down the sidewalk. When I was living in New York City, I, I would attempt to get out in public places in Manhattan, out on the sidewalks where there's like masses of people. And when, when I really tried to stay open, it was too much. There was just so much aggression and so much uh, fear that I would feel like throwing up after a little while unless I created a healthy boundary around myself. It, it's a process here. It's, I'm not saying that we can just go into the Republican National Convention and if it's ever going to happen in the public place and just open yourself up or the Democratic National Convention. And I, not that they don't have almost equal problems in some ways. Let me give you a few Maharaji quotes, and I'm not trying to sell my guru, but I do think that what he said was true. I, I've never met anybody who was more true than w the things that he said. Just take these in almost as a, a guided meditation. I'm always in communion with you. I'm always in communion with you. Imagine feeling that moment to moment. Keep God in your heart like you keep money in the safe. The only important thing is how much you love God. If you love God, you will overcome all impurities. See God in everyone. To get a pure mind, love all beings as your brothers and sisters. It is better to see God in everything than to try to figure it out, <laughs> which is a very good one for me. It is better to see God in everything than to try to figure it out. Meditate like Christ. Christ was lost in love. He was one with all beings, and he had great love for all and for the world. He was crucified so that his spirit could spread throughout the world. He was one with God. He sacrificed his body for the Dharma. He never died. He never died. He's living spirit living in the hearts of all. 
this Maharaji was saying that he was weeping. The tears were just rolling down his face as he was tuning into the way Christ loved. When I was leaving India, I said, you know, I used to be a scientist. I'm going back to America. I don't really want to be a scientist anymore. Do you have any instructions for me? And all he said, much to my disappointment, was, just keep saying the mantra that I gave you. <laughs> and, you know, I, I wanted some, like, specific advice. Go and be... Go and be a rock star, like Krishnadas or something. No, I, all I, all I got to do is keep saying a mantra. And yet, as the mantra deepens, as they say in India, that the name of God is God, that the mantra is God, there's no, there's no distinction between saying the name and the object of the mantra. One of the female Christian mystics, I think it was uh, St. Teresa of Avila, maybe Julian of Norwich, but I think it was St. Teresa, she said, pray only for God's presence. We don't need to pray for money. We don't need to pray for our children to get into the right college. Pray only for God's presence. When I was living in New Mexico, there was a place, it's still there, it's not quite the same anymore, called the Llama Foundation. It's up on a mountain outside of Taos. And it's a, it's a, it's an intentional community where they have teachers come. I used to teach there with Ram Dass long, long ago. Teach there with Stephen Levine. And there was a, a Native American elder in at the Taos Pueblo named Grandpa Joe, who would come up there and teach. And a friend of mine who was actually with us with Maharaj in India was living in a teepee on Taos Mountain. And she was going to these talks that Grandpa Joe was giving in the evening. At that point, people had spotted a bear near Lama. And one night, the talk went later than usual, and it was getting dark out. And she was a little concerned about walking back from the community area to her tent off in the wilderness a bit. And she said to Grandpa Joe, if I see the bear, what should I, what should I do? Should I talk to the bear? And he said, don't talk to bear, talk to God, <laughs> which <laughs> I thought was really a very good answer. Ramana Maharshi, who, as you know, was a most of you know, is a great proponent of non-duality, of self-inquiry, of asking, who am I? It's not really an intellectual question, but it's, who am I is a, a kind of a pointing. Who, who, who are you right now? Who is hearing? Are you the consciousness? Are you the person sitting in the chair? Are you, what, what is actually going on there? And that if you, if you keep going into who am I, you'll get that there's just consciousness. But what Ramana said was that there are really only two paths. There's the path of inquiry, and there's the path of devotion, the path of love. And that eventually you have to pick one of them. That either you're going to surrender and die into love. You're going to love so much that your separateness is going to dissolve in, through your love for God, or 
On the other hand, you're going to look clearly enough at who you are that your separateness is going to dissolve by this very clear looking. And we've been here presenting both of these two as a possible way of approaching things. But I say that eventually it's very important to pick something that you can can really hold on to. If, if you were in a car that was spinning out of control and you might die in the next five seconds or 10 seconds, are you going to be saying a mantra like Gandhi did as he was assassinated? Are you going to be just resting in non-duality? What is the practice? What is the thing in your life that is going to even cut through that looking at the probability of imminent death? So like when I was thinking that, I I mean, I actually thought I probably have COVID because I had this like really, I, I still do actually, I have this way down in my chest, this really heavy feeling. And I haven't taken a hike for three or four days. I just feel like lying in bed. And I thought, well, this is the beginning. Maybe it's a mild case. Maybe it's an intermediate case. Maybe it's the big kahuna here. Who knows? Let's see, right? And if I got sicker and sicker, where was I going to turn? And that... To me, it was going to be devotion. It was not going to be, I'm going to be propping myself up with pillows and trying to meditate all day long. In Vipassana, there, there's several practices. One of the initial practices is being aware of your breath. That's called mindfulness with support. And a more advanced practice is mindfulness without support. You're just mindful of whatever's predominating. Okay, but I've come up with a practice that I call devotional vipassana. And that is that you're mindful of the unconditional love that is the nature of each moment, right? I mean, it's, to call it vipassana maybe is a cheap trick here. But the notion is that in every moment, there is the nature of things. And we can, we can call it true nature, but we can also call it love. I mean, in the Bible, it says God is love. In any moment, there is this unconditional love or the sense of grace or the sense of presence that is the nature of our reality. And in fact, that's basically what Tantra is about, that you open up your heart enough that the I fixation, although it still remains, it's just one other thought in the, in the huge sky of mind. And you're, you're much more interested in the nature of things than who's looking at those, who's being with those things, or, or even what your relationship is. But what is the nature? What is the nature of hearing right now? What is the nature of Francis scratching the back of his neck right now? What is the nature of you know, whatever it is that's going on, right? There's, there's all these different experiences coming and going. Some are pleasant, some are not so pleasant. The beloved can only be everything. God isn't just that thing that happens when we sit down in front of our puja table and start focusing on a guru or a deity or something like that. So I was, I was with Maharaji. I'd just gotten there. I didn't quite know who he was. I was still like barely escaped Stanford PhD program, like what's going on here. And I'm sitting with Maharaji and my friend Mohan and a bunch of Indian devotees. 
Maharaji's talking to the Indians in, in Hindi. I don't know why the two of us were the only two Westerners there, but that's what happened. And he's talking and talking. And then he turns to us and says through the translator, how much do you pay for milk in America? And Mohan made a quick calculation in his mind, X rupees per kilo. And he told Maharaji, and Maharaji got all excited, and he started talking to the Indians and said, oh, they pay, they pay so much for milk. He talked on and on. And I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, I've come all the way from America, 12 time zones away, and we're talking about the price of milk. I mean, come on. Right? And then he turned back to Mohan and said, how much was it again? Mohan told him. And on, on he went for like another five minutes talking about the price of milk. And I'm getting bored and thinking maybe he's not quite who I, I was hoping he was. And all of a sudden, there was an explosion in my mind. It was so sudden and so profound. And I can't tell you how, but I knew it came from him. And the message was, look, we can talk about important things. We can talk about God. But if we're just talking about the mundane, we're just talking about bullshit, it frees the mind to relax and we can rest in presence. And at that moment, I was flooded with bliss to such a depth that I was in that state for the rest of the day, barely on the physical plane. Here I am saying interesting things about God. And is that distracting us from resting in that presence together. I mean, a few people have told me how much they miss not having this group. We haven't been together for three weeks. I'm trying to do my part in saying the, the clever, useful things. I've been studying this stuff for 49, 50 years now. I've got quotes and, and ideas and practices, whole folders of them in my computer. But is there any... And yet when we were with Maharaji... Mostly, it was just hanging out. Uh, when people would start to meditate, he'd yank on their beards to distract them. He'd feed us. He'd feed us so much. In India, they try to feed you to the point of nausea. They they try to make you eat until you could barely take it anymore. You'd, you'd say, no, no, no. And then when you put your hands up, they'd put the food down under your hand on your plate. And if you didn't eat all that food, they'd be very insulted, really. One other story about being with Maharaji, that one time I got the prime location, and there's a crowd of people around him, and we called it the grace race. I mean, who's, who's, who gets the name first? Who gets the mantra? Who, who is he paying attention to? Sometimes he wouldn't pay attention to you for a few weeks, and you'd think, oh my God, I'm a horrible devotee. And in fact, you would think that being with him would be the greatest thing of all time. How wonderful, how loving. And it was that, but it was also incredibly confrontational that I was confronting, everybody was confronting the places where you felt the need to be recognized, to be validated, to be told that you're, you're special in a certain way. So anyway, this one day, just through grace or serendipity or whatever, I had the spot right in front of Maharaji, and I had his foot in my hands, and I was rubbing his feet and his 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 uh, foot, and his his skin is so soft; he, it was like a baby's skin, even though he walked around barefoot all the time. And I'm rubbing his foot, and I'm in this kind of slight bliss state. After doing this for about five minutes, all of a sudden, I, I not all of a sudden, but I started feeling, oh, look at how lucky I am! I've got Maharaji's foot, and as soon as I had that feeling. He started pulling his foot away. 
And as soon as he started pulling away, I went back to just saying my mantra. And then he relaxed his foot and I rubbed it. And another five minutes went by or so. I don't know how much time. And once again, I thought, oh, look at how lucky I am. And he started pulling his foot away. It's just as soon as my, as soon as my relations where I got into, I'm doing this instead of it was just happening in a very free way. And it happened a third time. You know, I, I became egocentric in relationship to what was happening. Can we extrapolate that to what's happening here today? As I'm talking, as you're listening, as you're talking and I'm listening. Ecstasy from the Greek word literally means standing outside of oneself right where we are. So we're outside of ourselves. Ecstasis. You're outside. You're not me doing the thing. Jean Klein, my teacher, said, feel, it, feel the yearning, but don't formulate it. As soon as we get into, I'm, I'm wanting God, I, 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 it cuts off the flow. Can we feel that yearning moment to moment, that natural yearning in the heart to be with that which is pure? And Trungpa, in his inimitable fashion, said, the Dharma will haunt you for the rest of your life. So even if you don't have a loving relationship with God, or if you're not a theist, can you love the Dharma enough that this conversation that we're having in more theistic terms can be translated into non-theistic terms? That in a way, Maharaji is just an expression of the Dharma, or Jesus is. Uh, I remember once we were sitting with Maharaji and somebody had a a journal, and there was a, 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 a photograph of a statue of Buddha glued in this person's journal. And Maharaji saw that, and he said, who's that? And the person said, oh, Maharaji, that's Buddha. And he said, nay, that's Maharaji. <laughs> and at other times, he would say, Christ and Hanuman are one. Uh, I mean, but again and again and again, he was making the point that all deities, all true deities, all true saints are just a pure expression of pure consciousness, of the one reality. That, uh, like when Maharaji said, the only, impo only important thing is how much you love God. It doesn't care what face you give to God. I mean, he had devotees who were great devotees of him, who were great devotees of Shiva, who were great devotees of the mother, of Hanuman. And among the Westerners, there were people who have come back and are uh, there's Danny Goldman and his wife Tara, who are good friends with the Dalai Lama. They they really are very committed Tibetan Buddhists. And there are people that came back that dove very deeply into the Sufi path and the Christian path. Somebody once asked Trungpa, what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha? And he said, it means that when you go to the hospital and you're filling out the form, what's your religion? You put Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you put if you had to go I'm going to the hospital on Monday I'm going to have actually a colonoscopy and an endoscopy they're going to put cameras in both ends we're hoping it's not the same camera <laughs> or at least they do the one down the throat first right okay is that a bad joke it probably is so 
the the talk we're giving today is if we were looking at the sequence of things, it comes after a talk about motivation and a talk about embodied awareness and even a talk about compassion. So that this notion of dying into love will again and again be thwarted or challenged by the places you feel inadequate, by the places where your superego is coming up. And uh, there are practices and attitudes that come before completely dying into love, uh, such as mindfulness, where hopefully you begin to see this, so, like even the story about me holding Maharaji's foot, uh, he was giving me the teaching that as soon as I got caught in myself, he started pulling away, and that reminded me, oh, I'm mindful now of my mind state changed. I, I'm in a different state. I can go back to just being the mantra, being one with his foot, being one with God, and then his foot relaxed. So I had this lovely external reminder, if you will. What I'm saying here is that dying into love is is dying. It, Ramos and I once taught a workshop in Maui called Love and Death. Love and death are intimately related. We're, we're dying into love, and when you're dying, how much love is there? The ego structure is being challenged by devotion. And that is why in, in previous weeks, I've really emphasized that for many Westerners, going immediately to heart practices does not work too well. In the East, it's just assumed that you're grounded, you're centered, you're a pretty happy person, and we can begin this dissolving process. The Dalai Lama said on his third visit to America, now I'm beginning to understand you Americans don't like yourselves. It makes me very sad. Before, a neurotic personality can really completely surrender into love. For most people, unless there's some really unusual karmic circumstance, that there's this gradual healing of the neurotic structures, that one has to deal with the superego, one has to deal with feelings of inadequacy, becoming aware of them, having compassion for the part of you that's been suffering. For many people, it's very difficult to do this on your own. It's necessary to go to therapy and have body work and have somebody literally and figuratively hold your hand as you're confronting these places where uh, you're psychologically wounded. And then it becomes possible to die into love in a, in a way that is much more graceful, full of grace. I mean, I remember being in, in, in front of Maharaji for days at a time, feeling unable to connect with him and feeling uh, bereft. And here he was. I mean, he knew what I was going through. He could have done that little trick he did when I was with, with the price of milk story, but he let me, he let me feel that despair for days and days in a row. When we're talking about love here, loving the deity, that's part of it, that the, the deity is not always uh, easy, that there's a, there's a fierce side, there's a fierce love, and for those of you who are, who are parents, you know that 
to be a good parent, at times love has to be fierce. You're not always agreeable. You're not always saying, oh, good job. Or sometimes, hey, that's a bad job. You know, you've got to, you, you've, you've got to work with that kind of behavior a little bit. From a fundamental standpoint, from the standpoint of non-duality, a feeling of inadequacy is just as much God as a feeling of wholeness. But in terms of, of practice, in terms of practically being with feeling some relationship with God, all these feelings of inadequacy really get in the way for most people. My main practice was surrender to God, to, to love, to realize that no matter what state my body is in, that the heart doesn't die. Uh, Stephen Levine is this line, the mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. And fear of death is the biggest abyss. The other thing I'd like to mention here is that in terms of near and far enemies or w what it is that's, that's uh, preventing the heart being open, from the, from the standpoint of Buddhism, what, what prevents the heart from uh, being open is attachment, which I think is fairly obvious. And from the standpoint of childhood development, uh, we've said clearly that fear and anxiety are the enemy of being grounded and guilt and shame, the enemy being centered, does anybody remember what it is that prevents the heart being open from a in terms of developmental stages? And the word is grief. To the extent that you have unresolved grief, that makes it scary to open the heart. You've opened your heart and you've been, you've been wounded. Your parents weren't there a hundred percent. Your 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 dog died. Your your friend left. Your you know all these things happened. Well, I don't know what they were for you, obviously, but we've all we've all loved and lost again and again. Grief dares us to love again. There are really two ways of opening the heart. So far, we've talked about question. We talked about just opening, opening, opening the heart. The other way is dealing with what blocks the open heart. Grief blocks the open heart. The superego, feelings of inadequacy block the open heart. We, and for most of us, we need to take both of those two approaches, working directly with what blocks our heart and just exploring, plunging heart first into spaciousness and see what comes up. Grief is an armoring against healing. Grief is as old as our self-image. Grief is a fear of loss. Grief is where we separate from ourselves. Oscar Wilde wrote, hearts are meant to be broken. And the Hasids have a saying, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. Can we allow our heart to be broken? Can we be imperfect, finite human beings who again and again trust the infinite nature of the heart? Rumi says grief is the garden of compassion. What, what's being said here is that unresolved grief, unexamined grief, blocks the heart from opening. It is experienced and it's too painful to open the heart because of this unresolved grief. But when we begin to dive into the grieving process, then yes, that is the road to a more deeply loving heart. And we haven't really talked about this much, 
obviously because I work a lot with dying people, I also am in contact with a lot of grieving people. And I encourage people to do conscious grief work where if you feel there is some grief building up, maybe there's been a great loss lately, or maybe it's just that reservoir of grief underneath it all that we assume is the human condition and don't really look at. But you, you take, you occasionally, whatever that means, you take some time in a protected place and you invite grief to come. And you feel it in your body. You don't get into the story of I'm grieving because so-and-so left or so-and-so died. You just feel it as immediately and directly and in an unfiltered way as possible. And then can we let that be the, the, the opening into love, into a more deep heart, if you will, a heartfeltness? The Canadian psychotherapist Marion Woodman says that where we are wounded, there God can enter in. And so we're, we're exploring that very place, that place where we're wounded, but some of the wounds have scabs on them. They haven't completely healed yet. And we're, we're going there. We're, we're bringing healing ointment to the, to the, to the scab, to the unhealed wound and allowing that part of our hearts to open. Once again, there are these two ways of working with the heart. One is open, open, open. And the other is exploring grief and fear and the other qualities that make it hard to open the heart, exploring them in a wise, compassionate way. 